Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis and this week I'll be talking to Raphael Baer about the Clegg Farage debate, Alex Clark will talk to Booker Prize winner Eleanor Catton and I'll talk to Ian Steadman about hashtag activism. I'm joined by our political editor, Raphael Baer, to talk about... Well, let's talk about the big issue of the week, which is, of course, Europe. We're recording this the night after Nigel Farage and Nick Clegg, or Nick Farage, as David Dimbleby put it, um, faced off again about Europe. This time, the margin of uh, between them was even bigger, right? I mean, it was an even more convincing win for Nigel Farage. Do you think that was a fair reflection of what happened in the debate? And tonight, actually, I, or last night, rather, I think it was, actually. Um, I the, After the first debate my own personal view was that Nick Clegg uh, had, had won the argument and had looked more sort of steady and competent and, and reasonable, whereas the UKIP leader had had, had his slightly sort of foam-flecked, cantankerous side exposed. Um, it didn't surprise me that after that first debate, opinion polls still backed Farage, um, just because public opinion is sort of viscerally hostile to the EU, um, a lot of people are pretty hostile to Nick Clegg, um, and so Farage had all the advantages of an outsider. Um, I was even less surprised that the, the opinion polls went the same way last night, and by quite a strong margin. I think actually it was sixty-eight in one poll, sixty-nine in another yeah, in favour of Farage, right? Yeah, it's well, well clear of two-thirds um, against the EU and against Clegg. I think that the, the two crucial elements for me were that Farage kept that slightly. Um, sort of mean-spirited and and sort of borderline bonkers side of his character that you've sometimes seen recently in check, and he stayed focused on on the issue in hand, which was should Britain be a member of the European Union? Whereas Clegg tried something slightly different. Mm. He tried to uh, chip away at the whole UKIP world view. He tried to present Farage as speaking uh, as a sort of being desperate to, he kept using this phrase, turn the clock back, talked about the sort of dangerous fantasy of what Britain would be like outside the EU and, and spoke of his love for modern Britain, uh, which he sort of identified as this sort of tolerant, diverse, uh, happier, more optimistic vision of, of what the country could be than the one that Farage was offering, which I, that, I mean, is, is probably the right line of attack, but it sort of came across as if he was saying, 
I don't like people who think the same things as Nigel Farage does, which is very different from saying I don't trust or like Nigel Farage. And I, that was that was dangerous. I think that was a mistake. I thought Nick Clegg's biggest misstep came at the end when he when they said, well, what do you think the EU will look like in 10 years' time? And he went, mm, basically the same. Because that's not an easy line to sell. And certainly not the one that Cameron would sell, where he kind of goes, you know, I, well, obviously I want huge renegotiation. I want lots of money and powers and all this sort of stuff back. And that's a, I think that's a much easier pro-EU case to sell rather than... Yeah, and, and, and that's an extension of the the, the, the big problem that, that Clegg had last night was, was a, the same one that he had in the first debate, I think, which is it, he finds it very difficult, and a lot of pro-Europeans find it very difficult to respond to the charge that, that the reason you don't want a referendum is because you think stupid people will give the wrong answer. Because traditionally, that is exactly why pro-Europeans have not wanted a referendum. Um, and they can find all sorts of elaborate ways of making that case. But it is, you know, people aren't, you know, People aren't stupid and they can tell that when Farage says you don't want a referendum because you haven't got the guts because you think you'll lose, that there is an underlying fundamental truth in that. And until the pro, I my own views, until pro-Europeans find a way to say, you know what, we're not scared, we believe in this thing and we can defend it, bring it on, they don't really get into the conversation about the referendum. And, and largely it is about the referendum, that's in policy terms, is what this debate is really all about. So that Clegg was is always on the back foot in that conversation. I thought my favourite tweet of the night came from Hugo Rifkind of the Times, where he said, "What you know, how weird the world is when the kind of anti-establishment is a bloke called Nigel who worked for twenty years as a commodities broker, but he does that very well, doesn't he, Nigel Farage? He 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 portrays himself as this kind of lone avenger against the establishment. He does. I mean, it was the most extraordinary call at the end where he said, you know, he said, yeah, I invite the." the British people to rise up in my people's army and storm the establishment. Now, I mean, yeah, this is a guy who went to a an expensive private school in London and, as you say, was a sort of commodities trader in the city. And his whole project is bankrolled by a very small number of largely ex-Tory donors um, whose tax uh, status I'd be fascinated to read about in more depth. Um, no doubt it's all entirely fair and reasonable. But nonetheless, the point is that there is there is powerful money um, supporting a man who in every way looks and sounds like the traditional establishment, mobilising anti-establishment feeling. Um, and so what has gone on here, it's extraordinary, really. I mean, part of it is that there is that he speaks to a lot of people who would never have felt opposed to a certain kind of establishment 20 or 30 years ago, but feel that the country, feel expropriated, that the country has been taken away from them. And we know from the polls that they're, a lot of them, they're, they're older, uh, they've worked very hard. Uh, they have are now reaching retirement or are retired. And what they find, generally speaking, I don't want to make too gross generalisation, is that they're nowhere near as well off as they thought they would be in retirement. They can't afford to put their feet up. Sometimes they can't afford to necessarily heat their houses through the winter. They certainly can't afford to do the things for their children and grandchildren that they imagined they would be able to do. And that is a feeling of shame and anger that something that you sort of assumed was your due has just been taken away from you. You factor in a sense of sort of encroaching decay from a sort of a, a, a cosmopolitan, metropolitan elite that likes um, you know, foreignness and is relaxed about grime and generally the sense that the sort of this, this encroaching decadence is coming to your door and no one is barring its way. And then along comes Nigel Farage and says, enough is enough, I'm the person to stop this. Now, and it's very resonant. Did you take the populist poll which segmented the population down into these seven different categories that they want to look at people in? It's well worth doing if you didn't. And it basically it says that the most, the largest group of people are people who are essentially just don't complain. That's basically, you know, get on with it, keep your head down, don't complain. 
But um, I was talking to someone in, in the lobby and he said almost everybody in the lobby fell into one of things. They were either cosmopolitan critics, which is mm. basically sort of swat, eats swan, lives in North London, <laughs> or um, comfortable optimists, i.e. I'm doing all right, actually. I don't know why everyone's sort of banging on about this recession all the time. And I think that there is a, a general problem that you would not find very many of the rest of the population falling into those two segments. But all politicians probably fall into one. Almost all the journalists who write about politics fall into one of them. And that's anti-politics feeling is incredibly strong. My question is, does it survive contact with electoral reality? When UKIP, for example, start making some gains in British you know, council elections, well, English council elections probably most likely, you know, maybe if they get an MP after the next election, are they still going to be able to ride the anti-politics wave when they are politics? Yeah, then this is a tension at the heart of the UKIP project, isn't it? That they want to be anti-establishment and they want to, as you see, for exactly the reasons you say, be confounding established views of what politics should be about. But actually, they also need to ape a degree of respectability and seriousness to get across those key electoral hurdles. Um, and there's an interesting precedent here with the BNP, and I wouldn't want to stretch the comparison too far, but we know that UKIP have taken a lot of voters from the BNP. And Farage has actually said he's very proud to have done that because he, you know, in, in his argument, um, that means he's keeping the far right in check because he's a sort of respectable sort of populist, which is very different, um, apparently. And at the same time, he's barred ex-BNP members yes. from running for... Because he understands UKIP's. that it's disreputable to vote BNP. And the success of UKIP, I think, is a lot of people who were potentially quite open to a BNP-type message, but understood that it was somehow indecent and disreputable. And, and Farage has very cleverly neutralised that. But what you found is that when they got councillors, um, the BNP and other similar you know, sort of far-right organisations, they've been useless and people have chucked them out quite quickly. Um, and it is, and certainly what's interesting is that UKIP MEPs have been useless and a couple of them have lost their post because of fraud and they, they, they have not been effective legislators. Now in the European Parliament, that doesn't really matter because no one's paying attention. Um, it would matter if it was an MP. Uh, and certainly there is a feeling and a hope in the Conservative side that people will express this UKIPiness that they've got burning a hole in them um, in the European elections in May, that they will get that out of their system, but then in a general election where it really matters, they'll, as it were, come home to the Tories. And I've spoken to Conservative MPs who have said that they, are not, they aren't even trying to canvass people for the European elections on the side of the Conservatives. They are quite explicitly saying, if you feel you have to get this off your chest, fine, do it in Europe. But for goodness sake, don't let Ed Miliband in through the back door. And just to finish the point, the, the interesting thing is the number of UKIP supporters who aren't susceptible to a, if you vote for UKIP, you end up with Ed Miliband as prime minister, because actually quite a lot of them say, I don't care, you're all the same. Ed Miliband, David Cameron, whatever, I just want to hurt you all. And if that survives all the way up until May 2015, then the Tories are in very serious trouble. Well, that brings a, a larger point that's interesting because actually last night's big win for Farage at the expense of Clegg is, is, is really good news for Labour for two reasons, which is that we know that those left-wing Lib Dem voters are very helpful to them and we know that UKIP taking away Conservative votes are very helpful to them. How does Labour talk about the things that obviously animate a, a large section of the electorate without making them seem more important? I mean, I think immigration is the classic example that everybody, you know, you talk about immigration, therefore people feel it's a bigger issue and it spirals into a... Yeah, and you confirm the, the sort of the salience of it while not persuading people that you really actually have the power to do anything, that you really actually have the power to do anything about it. Um, this is a, it is a massive problem for, for Labour. I was having a conversation with, uh, I think, what in journalistic terms you have to call a very senior figure in the Labour Party um, just yesterday, uh, and I was relating my experience in, in 
Sail East and Withenshaw where I was talking to young people about their concerns and they were saying all the things that Ed Miliband has been talking about. Uh, they're talking about um, job insecurity, uh, zero hours contracts that, that mean they don't feel they're earning any money even when they're working, um, the, uh, the cuts to services that made them useless, uh, um, the, the bedroom tax, uh, cuts to disability yeah. living allowance, all this stuff. And it was basically just reciting the list of things that Ed Miliband talks about. And at the end of the conversation, they'd say, and so I'm voting UKIP. Um, and, and this very senior figure in the Labour Party who I mentioned this to looked, uh, was sort of looking quite enthusiastic with the first bit of what I was saying. And it looked terribly <laughs> and it all went crestfallen when so I wrong. then said, actually, and what they're, they're doing is voting UKIP. They don't know how to connect their labor don't know how to connect their articulation of the concerns that people have which they know are real concerns and they feel if they could get behind that if you could say we'll provide the houses we'll we'll, we'll sort out the, the services we'll make sure wages uh, keep up with everything with prices and and then you would somehow neutralize the the anti-immigration stuff because people don't like immigrants because they think they're filling up the school places and taking away the houses they're not actually all essentially racist some are racist but not all um so that's a labour sort of understanding of how it might work. It seems perfectly plausible. They 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 but clearly, saying that they're the solution to those. They problems don't have the, is, the strategy. The bit that they haven't yeah, got it to yet. That's the bit that doesn't click into place. Well, uh, on that slightly well half optimistic note, I guess let's be you know be optimistic ourselves about it. Um, thank you very much, Raf. Thank you. My name's Alex Clark and I'm here at the Cambridge Literary Festival. I'm joined now by Eleanor Catton, who's come to talk about her book, The Luminaries, which won the Man Booker Prize and which is just out in paperback. Hello, Eleanor, and thanks so much for joining us. Hello, thanks for having me. Just tell us a bit, now your book's coming out in paperback. Obviously, many people have have read it in hardback, but I suspect even more um, will be thrilled to read the paperback just just set the scene in a few words if you can for us and tell us what it's what it's about sure um well i've been describing it for a long time as an astrological murder mystery it's a story that's set on the gold rush um or on the gold fields i should say of new zealand uh, the west coast of the south island of new zealand in the middle 1860s and one thing actually that the paperback has that the hardback did not have is a is a, an illustrated map uh, because so many people read the um, the, the hardback and, and wrote into my agent or my publisher and, and asked and asked for a map to be included. A map of New Zealand or a map of the heavens or or is no, it both? No, actually, a, a map of the goldfields of Hokitika with the um, kind of uh, canvas town of Kaneri, which is a little bit inland, and kind of the site of all of the um, shipwrecks and and cottages and various things that figure into the story. So it's kind of yeah, it's a bit of a bonus in the paperback. Um, yeah, so I, I suppose, um, you know, briefly, the, the, the story is an adventure mystery in, of, of a kind. Um, it revolves around, I, you know, say revolves quite deliberately, <laughs> revolves around the um, disappearance of um, a, a prospector in a, in a town in, in 1866, and also um, the kind of the questionable death of, of, of one of the town's inhabitants. And so... A lot of fortunes change hands and, and people blackmail one another and stab one another in the back and, and, and that kind of thing. <laughs> it's got this amazing uh, beginning, hasn't it, with um, somebody arriving to make their fortune. 
Um, and and mm. you know those words I know are very important. The idea of a self-made man and the idea of fortune, you know, as a kind of financial fortune and also sort of chance, fate. Mm. Um, and Walter Moody arrives knowing nothing and really he's our sort of initial kind of guide in a way um he just we know as little as he does he he arrives uh into the port absolutely sort of sea legs you know going from mm. under him and is immediately aware that the hotel he's come to something's going on right <laughs> i think that in a lot of ways um a great deal of the luminaries was influenced by child children's literature for me. Um, children's literature is something I, I read as much as I can of. And um, just, you know, um, where I take a lot of heart, I think, as a writer, um, and returning to the books that I loved as a child. And one thing that um, is very, very useful to a, um, any children's writer, or, or also any genre writer, I think, is beginning by having somebody be a stranger in a situation mm. or kind of enter into a situation that they're, they're, they're unfamiliar with um, just because you can then in telling that character the story inadvertently also tell the, tell the reader the story you know and it kind of makes your job a little bit easier so I knew from the very beginning when I was writing the book that I wanted to begin with a stranger arriving in town um, it's something I actually I, I, I notice a lot in, in HBO dramas as well it nearly always begins with a stranger, you know, something like Twin Peaks or, or Deadwood, you know. The, the stranger coming to town is, is, um, is such a classic beginning of an adventure story um, because it's kind of a double revelation, you know, that the town has to um, incorporate that stranger and, 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 and also the, the stranger has to kind of um, discover the town. Mm, mm. And there's also this kind of fantastic element of you know influence of, of sort of victorian sensation novels and i mean i was put in mind when i read it immediately of that kind of atmosphere of wilkie collins where you have mm. you know the kind of the world coming together people travelers people from other parts of the world that sense of a kind of um things springing up mysteries all that sort of thing um and i think you were reading quite a lot of that fiction in the sort of in the, the kind of planning stages weren't you yeah yeah no i um i love reading mysteries um you know i think that 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 one of the great pleasures of a mystery is the knowledge that the writer has done so much more work than you have to as the reader you know <laughs> they've kind of um in their ingenuity and in laying down the plot they've um apprentice themselves to your surprise as a reader that, that they've, they've kind of laid down the plot with your surprise in mind um, and I, I, I'd always loved that as a reader so I wanted to kind of set myself the challenge of trying to do that as a writer as well and um, the, the gold rush scenario actually um, well it presented itself to me as a kind of a fine theatre in which to, to play out a, a mystery story partly because um, this is 1866 Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
1996 that this gold rush in New Zealand happened. And so that's a full, you know, 17 years after the, um, the gold rush in California first um, began. And what I discovered when I started reading up about the era was that the legislators of the goldfields in New Zealand had had quite a lot of time to learn from the mistakes made on other goldfields. So not only California, but also Victoria and Australia, and then Otago down south in New Zealand, which happened in, the, in about 1861. And um, for that reason, nearly all of the crimes um, that were kind of afoot, so to speak, on the, on the, on the goldfield weren't what we would call blue-collar crimes. They were what we would call white-collar crimes. So, um, you know, fraud and, and, and blackmail and, and, and um, people reneging on contracts and that kind of thing. And so I found when I started doing the research that there was, there was a, lot, um, a lot of fodder for mystery. It wasn't... Um, pe people weren't um, kind of turning up in town and, you know, firing off a round of <laughs> um, bullets and, and, mm. and kind of murdering one another and... and, and walking out without consequence. It was much more subtle than that and much more scheming than that. Let's do that that thing now and drop the A-bomb, as I think <laughs> you call it. A lot has been made uh, in this book of, of its length, um, also of its very intricate patterning, which um, owes a lot to astrology, the A-bomb. Mm -hmm. um, just tell us a little bit, I'm using your, your kind of nickname for it, <laughs> um, just tell us a bit about that sort of patterning. I mean, it goes, it, it, well, it starts with the title, doesn't it, with, with the luminaries? That's true, yeah. The luminaries is an astrological term that refers to the sun and the moon together. Um, the All of the planets in astrology can be understood as possessing a kind of influence um, upon the, the, the human spirit or the human psyche. And the sun and the moon, when understood together, form the ego, um, kind of roughly, with the sun being um, the kind of external or visible version of that ego or dimension of that ego, and then the moon being everything that's kind of hidden um, as a counterweight behind what is visible. Uh, the way that astrology works in the book is that every single one of the characters is modelled on an astrological archetype. Um, so there are 12 characters who are each one of the signs of the zodiac, they each represent one of the signs of the zodiac, and then seven characters who each represent one of the planets. And lastly, a kind of a terrestrial character who's the fixed point around which everything else moves. And uh, in the emotions throughout the book, I've patterned the, the plot of the book, I guess, on actual horoscopes from, from the era, which I generated using computer software. So um, although the book is, is not, you know, a historical novel in some senses, I've taken a lot of liberties with history and, and, and bent some historical facts to kind of suit my purposes, the, the book is historically accurate to the sky. Um, yeah. <laughs> just just tell us a, a bit um, about what it felt like. Uh, you finally finished this immense novel, huge amount of work, um, and then for it to be recognised, I mean, so internationally, for it to win the, the Man Booker Prize. Tell us a bit about what that was like and what it's meant for you as a, as a writer. Oh, I, I, I never dreamed that this any anything like this would have would have happened you know i think that the 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 challenge of writing the book was so immense for me um it's by far the hardest thing that i've ever done um in my life i feel like it's the most personal achievement you know um 
it, it, I was so exhilarated when I finally finished the book and I've, I've, you know, that the, this very complicated structure, I kind of, I got to work in the way that I wanted to, to make it work and, um, found my way out of all these holes that I'd kind of dug for myself and corners that I'd painted myself into that I think that everything else, I mean, although it's been astonishing, um, is, it's not as personal an achievement for me as just mm. the the one that I felt on the day after I finished the book, you know, and I and sent it off to my editor at long last, um, which is I mean I don't I don't want that to sound um, un, ungrateful in any way, but the one of the funny things about prizes is that they they happen so long after the fact, you know, after the fact of you finishing the book and kind of giving birth to it as it were, and. They're so accidental, you know. I mean, they depend so much on the, who the jury is and who else writes books that year and what mood everybody's in and, you know, what's happening in the real world as well and how, how your novel speaks to that or doesn't speak to that. And um, and so I think that you need to kind of keep, a, in, in a lot of ways, a bit of a healthy distance from that and kind of understand how incredibly circumstantial it is mm. and conditional it is. Whereas um, what really matters is writing the book that you want to write. And now writing the next book. Uh, hopefully. I, I, have, I, I am not writing at the moment. I, haven't, I now haven't written fiction for over a year. Um, and I don't, I don't miss it, actually. I, I am still reading. And I think that if I were ever to be in a space where I wasn't reading, I'd, I'd feel very unhappy. But um, I really don't mind not writing, you know. <laughs> I think your, yeah. your readers might have something to say about that. But we certainly <laughs> well, think you kind of, <laughs> yeah, you need, you, you obviously have deserved a break, but we hope you'll come back to it. Um, and we hope you'll come back to the UK as well. Thank oh, you. Oh, I hope that too. Thank, Thank you, you much. so much, Eleanor. Cheers. This week in the New Statesman magazine, we have a special tech issue where we talk to Jimmy Wales about Turkey's Twitter ban and net neutrality. Um, we have pieces from Syria, from Australia. Um, Laurie Penny has visited San Francisco. And I'm joined today by Ian Stedman, our tech reporter, to talk a little bit about some of the issues that it raised. First of which, Ian, is there's been a lot of discussion recently. There was a big controversy over the American satirical show, um, The Colbert Report, where a joke was taken out of context and tweeted. Mm. Uh, it was perceived to be racist. And then a hashtag was started immediately that was went straight to sort of DEFCON 5 of, yeah. of cancel Colbert. The fallout from that has been, I think, absolutely fascinating. It's shown up yeah. some of the strengths of hashtag activism and some of the, the pitfalls as well. How much do you think now you can say with a straight face that social media changes the world? I think you can. Um, my viewpoint on this is uh, the first fundamental thing that I think when it... Um, I, I find the use of the term hashtag activism is usually used in a derogatory sense. And I find that a little bit harsh simply because it rests on this idea of a dichotomy between the internet and real life, which I think is false. Because if that was the case, then why do things like trolling matter or death threats matter? I mean, the internet is just as much a part of real life. It's just a different way we express and communicate, communicate with each other. Um, but in that, leading on from that is the fact that it allows 
uh, new context to be formed, like jokes being taken out of context. Mm. Um, I know we have different views on the Cancel Colbert thing, but I think both well, of us agree. It's, I'm not it sure kind we do busy. have different views in a way, because I think that, I think first sort of start, so the activist involved with that was a, a woman called Sui Park, who's mm. Asian American. She's done some really interesting things before. She did a hashtag called Not Your Asian Psychic. Which where, went massive. Which was yeah. really interesting. But, I mean, it was old-fashioned feminist consciousness raising. Mm. I and mean, it's something that, you know, anyone who's involved in activism, your first one of your first duties is to identify a problem and convince other people that it is a problem absolutely and that she did that extremely effectively i think that's something that twitter is really really good at which is i mean it's easy to dismiss people tweeting things like i'm not your asian psychic as just like an echo chamber but in a way it is good that the internet allows marginalized communities who haven't been able to talk to each other or find each other because you know they're the only person they know in real life but on the internet they're not and they can kind of share experiences and go, wait, I'm not alone in this. You definitely see um, that with something like the way that atheism is such a huge deal online. And yeah. I think that when we did um, the Richard Dawkins guest edit, you had lots of people buying a single copy of that and having it sent to kind of, you know, Minnesota and something like that. Yeah. And I thought, well, a lot of these people are probably living in a town that, where a lot of your social life is organised around mm. church. That's probably how you meet people. That's, you know, something that is woven into the fabric of your community. And it becomes extra hard in that situation to say... I'm not, I don't believe in all this. I want to exit yeah. this. And therefore, you've seen creations like Reddit's atheism thread, which I know has its issues because it's a bit yeah. bro dude, but where <laughs> people who wouldn't, who would have otherwise felt very much like the only atheist in the village Absolutely. have yeah. kind of come together. There, there is, unfortunately, though, the other side of that where um, the openness that allows that kind of community to form is also the kind of openness that allows any group to um, take control of something or to change. Um, Thinking this morning, um, I don't. Did you see the normalized nudity hashtag? I, I did. I did. I saw that starting last night, which was a bunch of women posting topless fit photos of themselves to kind of say, like, look, being nudity is not nude is not necessarily a sexualized thing. As one of these kind of feminist uh, kind of discussions, this morning it was. I, I saw it again. People talking about how, like, last night while I was asleep, four um, chan got hold of it. Yeah, this is and what it I was full of full pictures with. of like so for readers who are like or listeners who are lucky enough not to know what four chan is. The B board, which is it's one of its its random image board, where you just post an image and then people can reply to that, was once described as the asshole of the internet. Oh, it is, which yeah. I think is a really fair description of it. So that tag is now filled with people's exploded legs and granny porn and yeah, uh, lots of penises, huge number of penises. That is the internet. Yeah, but for me, that was a, a a very nice example of the fact that you know the internet. This is why we can't have nice things because, <laughs> yeah. you know, even if you disagree yeah. with what people were trying to do there, I think the normal human response is, well, you know, it's not for me, but, you know, yeah. fairly boots rather than is, I don't yeah. like this. So I'm going to ruin it for everybody and yeah. no one else can have any fun that I don't like, which is what I felt that, you know. Yeah. That and that unfortunately does happen a lot on the Internet is the... Uh... You're not allowed to have fun. You're not having yeah. in, in the in the prescribed way. Yeah. But I thought that both of I mean both of those situations are interesting because I think particularly in the Council Colbert uh, one, there is a really interesting interplay that Stephen Colbert himself referenced when he he came back to it on his show about how many articles the mainstream media had got out of this. Yeah. And I think that what Sui Park said, which I thought was really interesting, was that she went straight to Council Colbert rather than you know, let's have an interesting, nuanced discussion about what this joke mean might mean. Yeah, was that that beca- that gets attention, and mm. and she's had a lot. I mean, she's had a lot of attention for this. She's had a lot of negative attention, a massive amount of abuse, huge amount of abuse and death threats and rape yeah. threats and all the things that you get as a woman speaking up on the internet. Yeah, and there's an there's a tough thing of saying, well, if you had approached this in a slightly more 
nuanced, mm. less aggressive way, would the response been less aggressive? In a way, is, is, there some, is, is there not a kind of irony here in the sense that there has been this long-running kind of bubbling under criticism of Colbert, um, the kind of idea that just because you're repeating a racist joke knowingly doesn't stop it being a racist joke. It, that, kind, that kind of criticism. Well, no, but that's been a, hu- I mean, that's been a huge in, in criticisms of Ricky Gervais as well yeah, and his absolutely. use of the word mong. And the idea is that, and actually it's the same kind of thing that was that drove the criticism of Lily Allen's recent music video, yeah. which is when you are repeating racist stereotypes with an ironic glaze, Yeah. how much of your audience is appreciating a ironic glaze? How much of them are just appreciating being able to look at stuff that is now seen as taboo yeah. and but you, not feel guilty? If you can't control the context of it, those things can go wrong. And the same thing with the hashtag, which is, you know, she goes straight into the criticism, but that's because she comes from a community where that kind of criticism is an established thing. Um, but as soon as it goes beyond that, it becomes out of context itself. And then you get these other kind of layers happening and it becomes, yeah. Well, this is the book that I'm writing about for next week's magazine. It's, it's by Dana Boyd, who's a social media theorist called It's Complicated, which is the social lives of network teens. And she has an interesting theory that's called context collapse. Mm. And she applies it in the sense of um, teenagers talking to each other on their Twitter feeds or Instagram pictures. Uh, she has the example of, uh, of a kid who writes a college application letter saying he comes from an inner city black neighbourhood, he's been involved with gangs, he wants to get out and go to this elite university. The university then go and look at his MySpace page, because this is 2007, and see it's full of gang signs. And yeah. they think, well, hang on, was he, was, he being, was he lying to us? And she says to them, well, look, you have to understand that young people navigate different contexts and people... The, the idea we have of the self being consistent across a lot of different contexts is, is, a, is yeah. a fiction. And what social media does is exposes that fiction. The way that you talk to your family, the way that you talk to your friends, the way you talk to a potential employer yeah. are all very different. And one of the problems we have is context collapse. So we can't deal with the idea that something that is appropriate in one forum now gets completely taken out of yeah. context. Yeah. And I think that's probably useful here. I'm not sure what the answer to it is. Yeah. It reminds me of um, the thing a couple of weeks ago with uh, BuzzFeed and quoting tweets of um, women revealing what they were, they were posting what they were wearing the first time they were sexually assaulted. Yeah. And BuzzFeed quoted a lot of those tweets in an article without asking permission, which... Well, then Hamilton kind of... Nolan at Gawker wrote a piece entitled Twitter is Public. Yeah. And that's, I think, for journalists, that's a huge ethical dilemma because you, technically it is, and if you embed a tweet in yeah. your webpage, Twitter still owns that content. You're not breaking any laws. Mm. But in the same way that you would ask if you had a source who was very mentally fragile, yeah. what effect is running this story going to have on them? The way I, I, I look at that kind of thing and things like Twitter is that it's, it's a similar kind of thing. Imagine if you were in a crowded bar talking loudly with your mates and you overheard someone say something quite controversial um it's that similar kind of thing of like yes it's public you might have the right to quote it but it doesn't mean it's the nice or correct or polite or um you know morally good thing to do again is an example of context collapse people posted those things with the assumption that they would be retweeted, some of them gave permission for it to be yeah. retweeted by the person who started that hashtag. They didn't post them with the assumption that they would end up forever on yeah. BuzzFeed. And that, again, comes to, I know Sophie Wilkinson, who you know, wrote a piece yesterday about public eating and this weird yeah. Facebook group that likes to post photos of women eating in public. Yeah, uh, she was eating on the tube. Um, she was really hungover. She was eating on the tube and some guy took a photo of her in a very unflattering position while stuffing her face with a kebab or something. Um, and it was posted on this Facebook group and got thousands of comments, but people 
slagging off her ginger hair and stuff like that and all the kinds of horrible things that happen in those groups. And eventually she managed to get Facebook to take it down because it's harassment. But the guy who did it didn't consider it to be harassment because it's like, it's just a bit of fun. You're in, you're in public on a tube, you're doing this. Kind yeah. of the right to do it. But it's, yeah, and I love the fact that he didn't at any moment seem to consider that there was something a bit weird about oh, no. a Facebook group devoted to pictures of women eating. No, that seems, that is that is in itself the weird thing. That's a normal thing now, a Facebook group dedicated to that. But that's another example of, of context collapse, because obviously yeah. people eat in public. And actually yeah. I'm a bit against people eating on the tube. But yeah. you know, sometimes you're running late, you need to have a sandwich. You know. yeah. Who am I to throw the first <laughs> Instagram? We've all done it. Yes. But it's... And it's something that then I think Sophie experiences as kind of quite violating because mm. it's it's you in an unguarded moment. Mm. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm going to start. I'm going to stop because otherwise we're going to end <laughs> up rambling far, about yeah. every weird internet craze that there is. But um, to, to, so yes, come back. Persuade me of the merits of hashtag activism. Um, I think it can be a good starting point. To put succinctly, I think it can be a good starting point, but obviously it's not going to be the end point in itself i mean it's no better than a petition but it can be the start of something good mm. and that's kind of echoes what um uh, our leader says this week actually which is about and and what you will hear from very senior figures in politics about digital campaigning they think it's absolutely fantastic as an entry point to getting the email address of people getting people involved in door knocking which yeah. is still you know the thing that was most like to sway your vote is has someone been around have they delivered a leaflet have you visited your constituency surgery yeah so it's it's probably about recognising that the stuff that it's very good for as a gateway, but also yeah. that it's not an end it's, point. It's an added tool rather than a replacement for what already existed. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good. We're in agreement. Yeah. We're in soggy consensus. High five. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much, Ian. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast. It's produced by Philip Morn, and our theme tune is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.